This podcast is a proud member of the Paranormality Podcast Network. And welcome to episode 25 of Stories of Strangeness. And this week is a mic episode and it's a biggie, isn't it, love? Hello. Yes. <laughs> it's the second in a two-part series. The first part was Roswell and this is the second part. And you have a question already, apparently. No, I was just going to say I didn't actually introduce us. No, you didn't, no. At all. No. Do you want me to do it again? I'm- I don't care. <laughs> if they don't know who we are by now, then just go back and listen to older episodes. It's not that hard. <laughs> All right, yeah. Uh, apparently I'm we're... Mike, that's Zoe. We're done. Right. Hi. Off you go. Oh, we so... done then. Bye. <laughs> no, not that done. I'm going to say some words, and I want you to tell me if you recognise any of them, and briefly, if anything, what you understand about them. Okay. E.G. and G. Egg. Papoose Lake. A papoose. Tony Harrison. Groom Lake. Um, no, I don't know. Los Alamos. Nope. Element 115. No. S4. No. Area 51. Yeah! Okay, what do you know about Area 51? Area 51 is supposedly where all of the extraterrestrial what's-its are kept in the US. I personally feel like that's a little bit too like, oh, look, it's all here. I think that's the, the, the dummy one. And yeah, people try to break in there and or go and hang around it to see if they can spot UFOs and stuff. Right. So here's a question. Do you know why you know what Area 51 is? Because the American government want us to know what Area 51 is? No. So, (laughs) strap in. I'm going to introduce you to a man (laughs) called Bob Lazar. And it's going to get strange. Bob Lazar is either the Edward Snowden of the UFO scene, or he's a devious fraud who has been hoaxing the world for the last 35 years depending on who you talk to. I first became aware of Bob through a book I read, probably in the late 80s, called Above Top Secret, The Worldwide UFO Cover-Up, by Timothy Good. I don't recall how I got the book originally. Perhaps it was a gift from a member of my family who didn't know what else to get their weird kid relative, and then somehow struck gold on their first try, or maybe I picked it out myself, but I read it at the age of around 10 and it blew my tiny mind. Within its pages were descriptions of otherworldly craft, strange propulsion systems that went against anything we know, and the possibility of other sentient and intelligent life in the universe. I later discovered that a good portion of the book came from one witness, Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar is an extremely intelligent person, with something of an anti-authoritarian streak, which hasn't always been to his benefit as we will see. 
He builds jet-powered cycles and cars as a hobby. He plays with high-powered lasers, and currently runs a chemical and scientific supply company called United Nuclear. When looking for work after college, he recalls informing a potential employer that he had a particle accelerator in his master bedroom as a project, as part of an interview. The big news about Bob is that according to him, he worked in a sister site to Area 51 as part of the same complex, called S4. He was hired as a theoretical physicist after graduating from MIT and Caltech, with master's degrees in physics and electronic technology respectively. Unfortunately, it has proved impossible to verify Bob's attendance at either institution, as neither have him on any record. This, Bob says, is because his decision to tell the world about what he calls the biggest event in history, that not only are we being visited by intelligent beings from light years away, but that the US government has in its possession extraterrestrial crafts that house technologies that could revolutionise life on this planet in a multitude of ways, did not go down well with said government. They have tried various ways to discredit him, says Bob, including trying to erase evidence of his life from public record. Interestingly, the government and its agencies have reportedly engaged in disinformation campaigns about him, threatened his life and the life of his wife, have shot at him, have raided his premises, have unlawfully entered his home, business premises and car, sometimes leaving doors open and things moved but never taken, including leaving all of his car doors open and an Uzi laying on the front seat that Bob had to protect himself and had stashed in his glove box, and this was corroborated by the friend he was driving with at the time. But they have never called him a liar. Not once. Bob first came into the spotlight in 1989 when he finally relented to George Knapp's request to interview him on camera and on the record about his experiences while working at S4. The interview aired with Bob appearing in silhouette and adopting the pseudonym Dennis, a reference to his supervisor at S4, which Bob found funny, until it landed him in trouble with not only Dennis, but the whole base. Bob then agreed to a further interview with George, this time appearing on screen and using his own name. In both interviews he stated simply and eloquently that he worked on trying to reverse engineer a propulsion system in a recovered extraterrestrial craft, of which there were nine in total, several of which were operational. He was made to read documents that briefed him on things like what was already known about the craft, it created gravity wells in order to fall forward toward a target, regardless of orientation, rather than the normal means of propulsion in Earth technologies, which usually involve pushing something out the back of a vehicle in order to make it go forward. As Bob puts it, imagine putting a bowling ball on a mattress, then press down on the mattress with your fist. The bowling ball will roll towards your fist. Area 51. Area 51 had the nickname Skunk Works, where stealth technology was being researched and where spy planes like the Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird and the F-117 Nighthawk were not only built, but test-flown. Area 51 has several codenames for parts of it, such as Skunk Works for the Lockheed installation, Dreamland for the airspace above the base, also called The Box, by nearby Nellis Air Force Base to designate an imposed no-fly zone for their pilots, 
who were grounded and interrogated if they crossed the invisible lines into it. Groom Lake, named after the dry salt flat lake bed, Watertown, Paradise Ranch, The Ranch, Home Base, or The Remote Location. Area 51 has become the byword for UFOs on Earth. It is known as the world's best known secret base. It was officially recognised in 2013, 24 years after Bob came forward and launched the site into the public imagination. Previous to this, the US government formally denied it even existed despite Soviet spy satellites taking pictures of the base and the fact that it could be seen from up in the nearby mountains. The local area boasts an extraterrestrial highway, at least one alien-themed diner and bar, and a healthy tourist trade. S4 Set aside from the main Area 51 complex at Groom Lake, there is another site about 15 miles south with hangars that have sloping roofs and are painted to look like sand and the surrounding mountains which they are set into. After being recruited by a company called EG&G, Bob would get flown to Area 51 and then get on a bus with blacked out windows that would take a handful of staff over to S4. Before Bob, S4 had never been spoken about anywhere in the public domain. It did not appear on any map. The area was simply known as Papoose Lake. If he didn't work there, how did he even know it existed? Reporter George Knapp called nearby Nellis Air Force Base and asked if they had an S-4. George knew the public information officer at the time and not only got confirmation, but was told that there were multiple sites that held the designation S-4. While at S-4, Bob worked on trying to reverse engineer what he calls the sports model. He talks about an antimatter reactor core which looked like a metal hemisphere about the size of a basketball. It had some kind of force field around it that repelled his hand like a similarly poled magnet. At one point, he caught a glimpse of something through a window of another room near to his lab. He described seeing two men in lab coats and something rather smaller in between them, which immediately made him think of the child-sized chairs in the cockpit of the craft he was working on. In the Netflix documentary, he states that he doesn't think he saw a live alien, but rather a doll that was being used by the scientists for scale. He says that there was no talk about live aliens on the base, although the documentation he was made to read contained many pages devoted to them and spoke of their visits and involvement with Earth and humans stretching back over 10,000 years, and even included illustrations of their internal and external anatomy. Apparently they came from Zeta Reticuli, the same star system that famous UFO abductees Betty and Barney Hill claim to have been taken to in 1961. Some note this as proof that Bob is lying, that his goofy sci-fi nerd nature couldn't help throwing a reference to. Interestingly, Zeta Reticuli is also listed as the star system that LV-426 is in, where the events of the movies Alien and Aliens are set. As of September 2019, no exoplanets have been discovered in the Zeta Reticuli system. Bob did take people to the area near to S4 on several occasions, which resulted in eyewitness accounts of strange crafts being test flown in the area, some of which was caught on videotape. How did Bob know where to go? And more importantly, how did he know when to go? 
Although Bob states in the documentary that there was no talk of live aliens on the base, they did have a nickname for them. They were referred to as the Kids, presumably for their diminutive stature. Bob mentioned using a biometric palm reader to get in and out of the classified areas of the base. It was a box that you put your hand on, with indentations in the box that ran underneath the fingers. Bob says that a bright light was shone that then measured the length of your finger bones in order to identify you. The device was identified as the implausible sounding Identimat 2000, listed as being made by the Identimat Corporation out of New York as listed on a photo of the machine itself, or Stellar Systems Inc. out of San Jose, California, the latter coming from an article in the Chicago Tribune dated the 13th of January 1985. These hand scanners were also used during the development of the F-117 spy plane for the same reason. However, a clip of one is clearly visible in close encounters of the third kind, at around 45 minutes and 26 seconds. Close Encounters began shooting in 1976 and was released in 1978. Does that prove anything? Did Bob see the device in the film and use it for his story? The Identimat has been publicly available knowledge since 71, however the small clip from the movie would have made it difficult to know how it operated. Also Spielberg got letters from the government saying they were unhappy about some of the things he put in the movie. Could the presumably classified Identimat be one of them? The Chicago Tribune article is another possible source as it was published in 1985 and Lazar's first interview with George Knapp as Dennis came out in 89. Element 115 Bob said that the ships were powered by Element 115, which at the time hadn't even made it onto the periodic table. How did he know about it? Element 115, originally called Ununpentium, literally 115 in Latin, was officially synthesized in experiments in the USA and Russia in 2003 and then announced on February 2nd, 2004 and given the official name of Muscovium by IUPAC, the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry. To date, only a hundred or so atoms of Muscovium have been created by bombarding americium atoms with ions of calcium in a cyclotron. The first experiment that proved its existence yielded only four atoms, which decayed in the blink of an eye. The radioactive metal, which has no known boiling or melting point, has four isotopes with known half-lives, the most stable of which has a half-life of around 220 milliseconds. Bob claimed that there were about 500 pounds of element 115 at the base which had a stable isotope, allowing it to be stored and used as fuel for the gravity amplifiers. According to today's scientists, it is entirely possible that a stable isotope of element 115 could be found in the future. Bob says it is unlikely a stable variant will be synthesized on Earth, as it may only be created in the nuclear reactions and immense pressures of a large star, although this claim has been disputed. Debunkers claim that a good enough knowledge of chemistry could lead to fairly easy predictions of elements not on the periodic table, simply by following established patterns. But considering he was talking about it in 89, and it was only officially announced in 2004, it lends credence to his claims. There is a rumour that Bob managed to get some element 115 off the base. 
Bob himself refuses to talk about whether or not he did manage to smuggle some of the exotic matter out, but it would go some way towards explaining why his lab supply business has been raided twice by more acronym agencies than he could remember, including the FBI, FDA and others who looked through his business premises allegedly to find an order from a customer from a couple of years before who ordered some potentially toxic materials. Something that could have been done by email, rather than surprising Bob and his staff one morning as he opened up. Additionally, Bob claims that Element 115 creates its own gravity, by a particular method used in the creation process which involves stacking disks of 115 into a cylinder, then lathing it into a cone, then slicing the cone into triangles, it becomes usable as fuel for the gravity amplifiers. There was another rumour of a video of a cloud chamber experiment that apparently showed light being bent by 115. The documentarian Jeremy Corbell, creator of Bob Lazar Area 51 and Flying Saucers, found a videotape labelled as Cloud Chamber Experiment, which showed around a minute of the experiment, but the rest was taped over. Bob says he used to work at Los Alamos. Los Alamos claimed no knowledge of or records of him, but George Knapp found a 1982 phone book with Bob clearly listed. His missing education. Bob claims master's degrees in physics from MIT and another in electronic technology from Caltech. There's no record of him at either college, but witnesses corroborate dropping him off at Caltech and picking him up from the college library and state, if he wasn't going to college at Caltech back then, he was making a pretty good show of it. Bob himself says, do you think Los Alamos just hired me right out of high school? If you don't believe that's possible, then something has to have happened in the intervening period. And Los Alamos is the sort of place where you don't get a job there without a degree. At one point, Bob got involved with trying to help some local prostitutes set up a brothel. Bob thought it was funny, but George Knapp didn't agree. The place got raided and Knapp recalls how back then not many people got arrested for pandering but Bob did. The courts got the same story that Bob had told previously. He worked for Los Alamos and then at S4. He had degrees from MIT and Caltech and worked on advanced propulsion systems. And the courts also had difficulty verifying the information. The parole and probation board thought he was misleading them and recommended that he do hard time. Knapp says that if ever there was a time to come clean about his story, it would have been then when Bob was facing a jail term. It was in his own self-interest to confess in order to avoid jail if his story wasn't true, but he stuck to his story through and through. In the end, he was given community service. Bob responded without hesitation when George Knapp asked if he would submit to a lie detector test. The resulting test was performed by Terry Tavanetti, a former LAPD officer, and ratified by three other polygraph experts. Of course, these days we know that polygraphs are not accurate and are no longer admissible as evidence in many courts around the world, but Terry asserted that the results showed no intent to deceive on Lazar's part. In the last 35 years, Bob Lazar's story has not changed. That in itself is pretty amazing. Bob admits when there are gaps in his knowledge due to the compartmentalization of the project and the need to know dissemination of information, he doesn't know how Element 115 is manufactured. He is still uncertain how many parts of the technology worked, 
especially considering there was no physical link between many of the parts. He has passed polygraphs, his own past has somehow been erased, including his education and work history, and Bob himself thinks it was weird he was hired for the project in the first place. There are three main theories about Bob. Number one, he's lying. For what purpose is unclear. He has not profited from his claims. If anything, it has been to his detriment, considering he has been shot at, had his home and business both infiltrated and raided, and has been ridiculed in the press. He does not do guest appearances for the most part, excepting an episode of the Joe Rogan podcast. He does not do UFO conventions. He doesn't like talking about it particularly. He's not plugging a book or doing the speaking circuit. Number two, he's a plant used for sowing disinformation. He was either complicit in a deceit that was spread by the US government for who knows what purpose. If he's been lying to everyone for the last 35 years, including his own family and friends, then the only reason I can think that he would do that would be because he's an agent of some sort and it's his job. Otherwise, it might be that he was an unknowing participant. Scenes were staged for him to view, and having gone over his psychological profile, the stagers knew he would be likely to leak information to the public. 3. He's telling the truth. Bob himself says he has no motivation to lie, and could probably come up with a better lie if he had wanted to. His only reason for speaking out is that he feels it's a crime for people not to know other intelligent species exist and we have tangible proof here on Earth. There have been several things come to light over the years that seem to verify aspects of Bob's story. Area 51 and S4, his inclusion in the Los Alamos phone book, Element 115 becoming a real thing, the Identimat hand scanners, the classified methane-fueled aurora jets which he sketched with accuracy. Not everyone believes him, of course. Many get caught up in his inability to explain certain things or his unverifiable education. Bob would rather people look at the big picture of his claim rather than endlessly debate the minutiae. Aliens exist, and they are coming here in crafts with technology that does not exist anywhere on Earth. For what reason? Maybe only they and a handful of humans know. Hello everyone, this is Brandon, the host of the Parunity Podcast, wanting to take a second to tell you about our show. The Parunity Podcast is your top choice for closing the distance between the paranormal groups. From ghosts, to cryptids, to ufology, we will discuss it all. The Parunity Podcast is aimed at promoting positivity and collaboration between investigators, and is geared specifically for those in the field. But if you're not, you'll still get a kick out of the show as well, because you'll be able to think of it like ghost hunters talking shop. Tune in and join myself and all of our amazing guests as we entertain you with sensational stories of fantastic places, events, tips for your investigations, and so much more. And remember, you can find the Parunity Podcast on your favorite podcast directory and part of the Paranormality Radio Network.
I don't know. So, some of that I did actually know. Right. I'm not sure what bits. <laughs> it's the kind of story that I've, I think I've, I've heard bits of the story, but not taken or not remembered. Yeah. Like the names. I remember Blackbird, like the plane. Yes, R seventy one Blackbird. Yeah. Yeah. Because that was quite a big thing. Yeah. And it was, yeah, because that was in the eighties, wasn't it? Yes, it I believe so. Yeah. Because that whole stealth thing was like, yeah. wow. It's, yeah. But yeah, that's that's really interesting. Him knowing all of this stuff, them saying, oh, you're lying, you're making it all up, and then years later, then oh, yeah, by the later. way, yeah, it's, it's, this is this is real, this is a thing, this is a thing. Yeah. There was another thing that I forgot to mention as well, which was that when they did the background checks on him, because obviously yeah. he was looking to get ultimate top clearance to work on the stuff he was doing, Yeah, which that clearance is called Majestic, which anybody with a vague idea of conspiracy theories has probably heard of Majestic 12. Anyway... Majestic is a level that is 22 levels higher than the highest civilian clearance. And it's also quite a lot higher than top secret. Hence why the book was called Above Top Secret, you see. Right, there's this okay. Extra yep. level of extra levels of clearance that goes up to Majestic. When they were doing the background checks on them, there was somebody came to his house and obviously talked to him. And he had to fill in loads of forms about everything he'd ever done, yeah. everywhere he'd ever worked, people he'd worked with. He had to put down names and phone numbers of everybody he'd ever worked with. Holy Imagine, moly. Like supervisors and stuff like that. Not necessarily everybody, but like, you know, people in positions of authority and things yeah. like that. And obviously he couldn't remember all of them. But he did remember that the guy who came to see him was from a government agency mm -hmm. and his name was Mike Thigpen, which is an unusual name, yeah. right? And definitely a weird name to just make up off the drop of a hat, right? Yeah. So anyway, Jeremy Corbell, who did the documentary on him, found Mike Thigpen. Wow. Not only found him, spoke to him on the phone. Mike Thigpen refused to go on, on the record because yeah. of he, he was like, look, this... This I've had a great career. He was retired, but he doesn't want anything besmirching it, whatever. And you know how things are with UFOs. It, it tends to discredit yeah. people. But Mike Thigpen remembered Bob Lazar. Now, if Bob Lazar didn't work somewhere with high clearance... Why did he need to Why meet did him? Mike Thigpen remember yeah. him at all? So there's so many things. Because there's another theory is that Bob Lazar was a janitor like Area 51 or S4, right. and that's where he got his info from. Okay. But would a janitor have access to test flight schedules to then be able to take people out into the desert on three separate occasions Yeah. each time people saw stuff, and one time it was videotaped? That's Yeah, that's highly unlikely. It's not impossible. Right? And not only that, but what kind of janitor builds rocket cars in their yes. spare time. I mean, there's, there are pictures of him with the rocket cars. He got he got mentioned in some local newspaper at one point about his hobby for building rocket cars, but it referenced him working at Los Alamos. The guy definitely worked at Los Alamos. There's no two ways about it. Well, that. yeah, it's like you say, and if he worked there, which he definitely seemed to do, yeah, he obviously had to have gone to university. Yeah. Otherwise, what was he doing in between? It's like, yeah, okay, exactly. if, I, if I wasn't at university for those, what, three, four, I don't know, six years or whatever, yeah. what was I doing? Yeah. Show me what I was doing. 
you don't get a technical job without some kind of education generally it's like someone like a someone turning up at a garage and won't go in i can fix cars yeah and, and they won't all oh, right go, then do you want to well, just a spanner, go for it man yeah we'll just we'll just leave you with that one it's it's a really expensive customer's car but yeah go at it's it whatever fine. yeah yeah it just doesn't happen so there's all these things that Bob mentioned. Now, there's a huge controversy about the Identimat hand scanners. So Jeremy Corbell, the, the documentary maker again, mm-hmm. and George Knapp both searched for this thing for years because Bob described it to a T. He was like, it had kind of grooves in it where your fingers went and there were pegs in between each finger. And then it had like a card reader on one side. Okay. I can show you the photos of this thing. It's identical to how he described it. Yeah. Now, yes, it did appear in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but it's very briefly, and it's from the side, and some guy just puts his hand on something and a door opens, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Which kind of gives you the idea. But where did he go? Where did he get the idea that it measured the, the bones in your hand? I wouldn't have... That's I would have gone madness. fingerprints Yeah, fingerprints that. is ob- the obvious thing. But this thing apparently measured the phalanges in your the bones in your hand because everybody's a different. That's interesting. Not only that, it measured like the thickness of the webbing between your fingers, which apparently was what the, the little rods made sure that your fingers were uh. played out correctly. Now, there were two models. One had a card reader on the side that you could put like a magnetized credit card style card into it, and one didn't. So he said he saw the ones with the credit cards. We know that they were used at Area 51 when the F-117s were being made. They were being used to let people in and out of the base as a security precaution. Right. Okay. So if they were being used during the F-117's you know, build process, design process, S-4's 15 miles away, essentially in the kind of same area, you know, because there's nothing else out there. It's just desert. Yeah. Yeah. So it would be extremely likely that they used it as well. So the only thing people really seem to have a problem with is, A, they can't trace his history which he himself says basically the government tried to make him a non-person by yeah. erasing parts of his history to make it difficult to verify. Is it like in photos order to discredit or anything? Like well, he's got like, some photos of bits and pieces, but the thing is not everybody had a, yeah, a camera I suppose in their back pocket then. back then. Yeah. And you wouldn't be allowed to take one onto a classified site because they don't yeah. want you taking photos. But then photos. Like, the university thing, surely he's got – you'd have one or two, surely of like – I am at uni. I don't know. Maybe. He's obviously, you know, very intelligent and he's obviously scientifically trained somehow because you don't just get up one morning and build a rocket car. (laughs) I I wouldn't even know where to start. Unless it's out of, like, you know, know. cardboard boxes and, and, you know. No, I mean, I've seen pictures of this thing. This thing was crazy. No, Um, I just meant, like, the normal person going, let's build a rocket car. Here's a cardboard box. I've drawn some flames on the side. Woohoo! Yeah, I mean, he's, he says on the documentary that he started making his own fireworks at 12 and he's been making professional fireworks for the last 20 years. And he really just, he likes things that go bang and he likes harnessing huge amounts of power and making it do what you want. So for okay. him, this this project was a dream because basically yeah. he, he says that the ship flies belly first. So rather than flying saucers flying along like that, once they get out of a, an atmosphere, yeah. they fly that way. They <gasps> like fly slave one. Because the gravity amplifiers are in the bottom of but the But that, that's exactly the yeah, same, isn't it? Yeah, kind of like it? slave yeah. one, yeah. Yeah. But what it does is it creates, you, you basically, you focus the, gra- the three gravity amplifiers. Yeah. 
onto your target, and then it basically makes that down, regardless of what direction you're facing Okay, it. so then so you, you are... fall towards fall. it. That's amazing. And in the book, Above Top Secret, which I've actually managed to purchase a new copy, and it's being delivered tomorrow... What they excellent talk about, timing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, just after we've recorded, really helpful. Anyway, it's going to be fun reading it again. Yeah. But they kind of mention things like, imagine a piece of paper, mm-hmm. and if you draw a dot at either end of a piece of paper, yeah. what the thing does is essentially fold them the together. paper so yeah. that the two dots are almost right next to each other, and then let's go, and you're now over here. And that's how these UFOs manage to do these crazy manoeuvres where they can suddenly do a 90-degree turn at thousands of miles an hour. Okay, okay. Because literally they go, right, we're flying along this way, now we want to go that way, so you just turn the gravity amplifiers that way, and and that becomes down. Yeah. So you just fall that way suddenly. So it's... I don't know if you've read any of The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. No, I haven't read that one. He talks about magic in that, and, and these things called lashings, where basically the magician, the mage, whatever, can kind of lash themselves to a wall so that the wall becomes down. So they just fall onto the wall or they fall upwards onto the ceiling. He uses a similar thing in the books about the mistings and the mistborn yeah. where they use metals and they can push or pull off the metal. Yeah. And this basically is kind of a similar sort of thing where... Yeah. You know, he has a scene where this guy runs down a corridor with loads of soldiers in it and he just flips up onto the ceiling and starts fighting them from the ceiling and they don't know what to do. And then certain ones of them, he can make them just fall t- towards a wall or fall towards a ceiling and then drop down and they can't get him because they're pinned to a wall yeah. or a ceiling. And it's it's kind of like sort that. Of playing, you can so just it's go, like right, playing with This with way's gravity. down, that way's down, yeah. this way's down, and you just fall whichever way. Handy. Now, my only problem with that is... The, the the folding paper theory holds if if you could create a, a big enough gravity well you could yeah. in theory kind of do the same sort of thing where you fold space and time and you only travel a short distance but to an outside observer it looks like rocketing. you've shot off at thousands yeah. of miles an hour because my only problem would have been well even gravity has a like everything has a maximum terminal, terminal velocity terminal velocity exactly. yeah so you can't travel faster than light just by falling but if you can bend space, you can. So, yeah. And at one point, I actually had a model of the S4 flying saucer disc. You can buy one. Yeah. And it's got, like, transparent sections so you can see inside. And it had the gravity dampeners and it had little seats with little grey oh, aliens in them and oh. stuff like that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I might get another one of those models at some point. Make it again. I don't know where the other one went. I think it, I think it got dropped and it smashed. It was... Because it was gravity and... Yeah, Yeah, gravity, (laughs) unfortunately, claimed it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, when you get down to it, you have to think, if this guy is telling the truth, and there are a lot of things that seem to point towards the fact that he might be, although some of it is a bit iffy... I feel like the trouble that it's kind of got him into... It just doesn't seem worth the, the lies if he were right. lying. Not, it's not like, for 35 years yeah, of sticking to the same story. Yeah, it's like you'd just be like, story. oh, you know what? Sticking to the same story when it might have almost landed you in prison as yeah. well because they thought you were being Death threats, a prison, having your like work and business kind of... He had his tyres shot out once while like, he was push- driving along. Honestly? You know, what, and, what, what? And actually, if you watch the documentary, there's a bit where him and Jeremy talk about 
whether he got a piece of element 115 out of the lab. And he basically says, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. I'm not comfortable talking about it, blah, 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 blah. The next day, he was raided by the FBI again. Oh, my God. And again, it was like standing room only. There were so many people so and they're like, oh, yes, we're just looking into the this old order. It's like, with black SUVs. you could have yeah, just phoned you, me up and yeah. I would have sent all the details Took over to you. Took all of his members of staff and put them in different rooms so that they could, couldn't confer. You know, confer yeah, no conferring. Like it's insane. There's a bit on the documentary where they're starting to talk about it and they're, they're literally out in, they're gone, they've gone for a walk in the middle of nowhere so that they're not being listened to. And at one point, Jeremy goes, hang on a minute, have you got your phone on you? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, okay. We're just going to, I'm going to turn mine off and we're going to put them over here. And then they walk away and talk. And it's just like, yeah, your Always phones listening. are definitely listening to you. And, <laughs> listening. Well, I mean, look at like, was it Echelon and things like that, that Edward Snowden said about where, you know, the, the US government can absolutely tap into anybody's phone call at any time, any email, any anything. Yeah. It's all available to them and it's all being monitored all the time. So there was a there was a movement I think on Twitter to try and crash Echelon. Yes. Where everybody just put like a hashtag, hashtag and a, with a like particular word like bomb or, or something or like that in terrorist yeah, or something like something that. Yeah. Something like that to just make Echelon shit its pants. But whether it did or not, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think that he said there were nine of these crafts and, and several of them, of them were still working. Yeah. Which that's. That's what he's saying. They're, they're test flying over Papoose Lake, and like I say, that if if any of the pilots from Nellis Air Force Base even entered that box, they were grounded and they were interrogated. Because what would they see? Hmm? Exactly. What would they see? And like I say, it's it's just really interesting that at no point, despite trying to discredit him and all the rest of it, they've never actually turned around and said, "Well, he's lying." Yeah, which is interesting. That's yeah. that's a a kind of a, a big thing because. Well, because the thing is, if he has anything that can prove it and they call him a liar, he can sue. He can ah, sue for yes. slander. But then it libel, also throws it, is. it throws out that thing of who else have they done that to? But if they don't But also, deny if it, he took them to court and proved that he wasn't lying, that opens the floodgates then oh because that basically means the US government have to admit that he's they telling have, the truth. They have nine alien spaceships. Yeah. And possibly, yeah. like little aliens working for them, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So there wow. you go. So the only reason we know what Area Fifty One is, or S Four, or any of this other stuff, is for a is man that apparently doesn't work for anybody, or really hardly exists. Yeah, thanks. Works for his own Bob. own lab supply company now. But yeah, I find myself watching the documentary and wanting to believe him. Yeah. I think that the, there are two possibilities. I don't think he's lying. Or if he is, he's extremely good at it because he's passed not only polygraph tests, which again, they test more for anxiety and things like that. So it's not necessarily a great indicator of deceit, but he's also passed things like people have read his body language from the interviews he did and said that he doesn't seem to be lying or deceiving or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, some people have said that the Identimat hand scanner thing doesn't prove anything because there was publicly available information about it from 1971 onwards. But then George Knapp and, and Jeremy Corbell had a hell of a time trying to find it. And mm -hmm. then they show him the photos and he goes, 
oh wow yeah i didn't think i'd see one of these again and you can see there's recognition in his face you know he looks like oh yeah uh, yeah and he's just really matter of fact about all of this stuff which yeah, and the fact that he's think, not like showboating you know, about any any of it. No, if he's well, like, like I say, well, he doesn't gonna, do conventions. I don't want to do this. I don't want to talk doesn't about do the that. Speaking circuit. There is his autobiography, but I mean, he doesn't even mention that on the documentary. Whether it came out afterwards or not, what I don't know. But he's he's not selling you anything. All he's saying is, "I saw this stuff. It is real. You should know." Yeah, that's it. That's all he's saying because he's. There's even a bit in the 89 interview, or one of the 89 interviews, where he says, you know, they said, well, you know, convince me. And he goes, well, no, that's not, that's not what I'm here for. I'm not, I'm not here to change anybody's mind. What I'm here to do is, is tell you that this is going on. You either believe it or you don't. There's nothing yeah. I can do to change your mind about that. So I'm not going to try. And that's the kind of person he is. He's very kind of forthright, down to earth, quite a sort of pragmatic guy. Like I say, bit of an anti-authoritarian streak, you know, gets involved trying to set up a brothel, builds <laughs> rocket cars in his garage, you know, a particle accelerator in his master bedroom. You know, he's he's not really that fussed about what anybody thinks of him. And he's certainly not that bothered about what the public at large think of him. Yeah. He's just saying, I think this is a crime that this is being kept from us. Because he says, you know, if we could figure out this technology, it would change everything. Would, overnight. completely. You know, there'd be no more need for cars. The economy would change completely. Because if we could manufacture this Element 115, and again, you know, he's talking about Element 115 in 1989. It didn't even get announced until 2004. It's just all a bit... It's, it's odd. Yeah, it's it's a weird story. And it's one that I've had in my life since the late 80s. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of glad I finally get to do this episode and, <laughs> and talk about it because it's, it's been a big one for me for a long time. I believe that there are UFOs tucked away. I don't think they're in Area 51. Like I said, I think that is... A... Well, technically they're not. No, they're in S4. Yeah. Which isn't quite the same thing. It's like saying there are UFOs tucked away in Cambridge, but they're actually here. So exactly, that's what I mean. Because yeah. like for a normal person doesn't know about S4. I didn't no. know about S4. No, but which I is just... weird because that's actually where he worked and yet everybody's latched onto Area 51, which from what I've read, it was just about spy planes and, and, and normal yeah, but again, aeronautics. How do you know that wasn't because that's the way the American government yeah. angled it so that yeah. people got more obsessed about that so they went and hung around there. Mm. They're less likely to hang around S4 to actually see the real stuff going on. Yeah. And that's how you do it, isn't it? It's like well, when misdirection. They did, yeah, when they did the the Storm Area 51 thing, yeah, which that guy did on Facebook as a joke and then loads of people went, actually. Oh, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, Bob did come forward and say, this this is a terrible idea. Please do not do this. Because I think one of the things that was going around at the time where people were saying, well, they, they can't get us all. Yeah, yeah, they can. Yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah well, they can is, get them. This is a military installation. They're probably prepared for quite a pretty large much, incursion. Yeah, pretty much anything. You know, yeah, no, they will shoot you. Because I'm guessing there's going to be heavily armed guards yeah. all around there all of the time and they'll be moving. And they'd be able to see you coming from miles away. Oh, absolutely. And it would just be a case of... On a satellite, probably. Yeah, nuke them from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, get the planes in. It doesn't sound like that at all. You know, helicopters, be like Airwolf. I'm just like, you know, get the A-team out of it. I don't know. 
Just all of them. Tanks, stuff. Yeah. All, all the bombs, all the guns. Or just ray, you know, lasers, ray guns from, yeah, yeah. UFOs. Last, they'll, they'll go, they are real. Oh, but now I'm dead. Yeah. Um, There's a bit on the documentary where he plays with laser guns. He's got like a handheld laser pistol. And he kind of fires it at the door frame, and you can see like a little lick of flame go up the door frame as he as he ah, fires it. What? He, he's got another one that Jeremy Corbell says it looks like a proton pack from Ghostbusters, and it is kind of PVC plastic tubing for the, yeah. for the actual bit you hold. And he says, oh, "I want to shoot you this one because this one's loads more powerful. It's perfectly safe. It's perfectly safe." And Jeremy's like, "No, no, please and don't." He shoots, he shoots the the door frame again, and like even bigger bit of flame goes up the door, and he's like, "No, I think I'm fine. Thanks." That's it. We can put that away now. Put the laser gun but this away. This is this is the sort of guy he is. You know, he's he's actually kind of a, a fun kind of goofy guy in a lot of ways and almost doesn't realize how intelligent and crazy his ideas and hobbies are yeah to an extent i think because it's normal for him yeah Yeah. and everyone else like you have a what yeah yeah it looks like a toy but it fires a reasonably high-powered laser yeah yeah mad mad (laughs) (laughs) thank you for that that was yeah you're welcome really interesting it's good fun to, to research as well so Next up is where can they find us? Because we haven't got any thank yous to do because nobody loves us anymore. Nobody's left us a review. Leave us a review. There you go. I've said it now. (laughs) Where can they find us? Well, they can email us. Storiesofstrangeness at gmail.com. They can find us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash storiesofstrangeness. It's a bit of a theme there, isn't it, guys? Yeah. Instagram. At storiesofstrangeness. Twitter at so strange pod the odd one out <laughs> and if they want all of those again they can look on the website stories http <laughs> colon slash slash stories of strangeness.com and if they want to buy random things or stickers with our random logo or other random pictures lots of random 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 yeah I'll say that bit again no that's fine <laughs> leave it in oh, I don't know what's going on I've got a good one for this this one because he drew a sketch of the sports model and showed the gravity, how it goes around it. And it, he said, basically, it goes around it in a heart. Oh. So I'm actually thinking I might get a little UFO with a heart around it tattooed on me. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. I won't use the... I've seen somebody's already had the actual sketch that he did. Yeah. Like, recreated. But I'm just going to design my own little UFO in a heart. Weirdo. Yep. <laughs> So, yeah, back to Redbubble. Yep. Yeah, if you want to buy a sticker or any other random stuff with our random pictures on. T-shirts, socks, bath mat, I don't know, whatever. Pillows, I don't know. You can check us out on Redbubble. It's Zoe and Mike. No spaces, all one word. Uh, And lastly, if you want to help us out with the day-to-day running of this little venture, you can find us on Patreon. Yep. We've got two tiers. The first tier is... A pound a month. And that is just a, thanks, guys, you're doing all right. Have Keep a pound. Keep trucking, yep. Uh, and the second tier is... Three pounds a month. And for the three pounds a month you get... You get outtakes, you get illustration time-lapse videos of our artwork, and you get... Minisodes! Yay! So, so, yeah, just like a mini version of a maxisode with slightly more randomness, I guess. So, yeah, that's what you get for that little extra smackerel. Uh, have you got a fun fact, love? The French word for dandelion is pissenlit, which means wet the bed. 
which is probably where all our ideas of dandelions making you wet the bed comes from. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But also, it comes from the fact that dandelion leaves have diuretic properties, which means they make you wee. But see, my mum always told me it was the juice in the stalk. If you got So if you picked a dandelion and got that juice on your fingers, it would go all brown and gunky but that would make you wet the bed yeah yeah but that was basically just to stop you guys picking dandelions all over because honestly we would pick them all yeah so there you go that's where the myth of dandelions making you pee yourself comes from (laughs) fun fact thank you they're french yeah (laughs) and on that note i believe it's time to say goodbye goodbye love you (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.